Welcome to the Stuttgart Missional Community Church Sermon Podcast. SMCC is a multicultural church serving the English-speaking community in Stuttgart, Germany. For more information or to contact us, visit us on the web at smcchurch.net. That's smcchurch.net. It's been a really great week since we've been here. Uh, you know, Pastor Matt and Stacy, you know, thank you guys so much for inviting us, the kind invitation to have us here and then hosting us. And we just had, these guys are just amazing hosts. Uh, you guys have incredible pastors. And uh, this is an incredible church. I mean, we, we were here yesterday with the men to see the men that would come here on a Saturday morning and give up their whole Saturday to align their lives to the lives that God created them to live, to be the men that God created them to be. It was pretty incredible uh, turnout and the, the response, the interaction. We, Jeremy and I do a lot of these, and sometimes you know, men are there because their wives hold them to. You can tell the difference between men that are there because they want to be there, and they want, they're intentional about uh, making these uh, big changes and decisions in their life, and that's what we felt yesterday. So you know, for the ladies who sent their husbands here, uh, you got some pretty good men. It was a great day yesterday. And uh, yeah, give me a hand. <laughs> so. <laughs> We, uh, we are not leaving. Uh, Jeremy and, S- and Susanna are going to stay. Uh, Susanna is actually from uh, Germany, and so she's going to stay and visit some family here, and Kathy and I are going to go tomorrow to, uh, to Stuttgart Base and uh, to Marine Forces Europe and Marine Forces Africa and do a, a spiritual resiliency event on base there with the Marines. So, you know, definitely be praying for that because this is an event that's going to be open to all the Marines and sailors, and I think any, anyone could go, uh, whether you're a Marine or sailor or not, but it's being put on by the CG of more for more for Europe, more for Africa, but uh, just be praying for that because we're going to have a, a chance to have encounters with uh, people on base who are who are not uh, yet believers, and so we we're playing for that impact tomorrow. Um, the the event yesterday, I shared a little bit of my story. Uh, I saved some for today, but for the men that were there yesterday, you have to uh, you have to endure some of my bad jokes again. But uh, for the sake of uh, just me sharing my story, I can't change it. I, I, but uh, at, the end of, at the end of me uh, sharing with you guys, I'm going to do kind of something special. Kathy's going to, my wife's going to come up. By that time, you'll probably want to hear from her. So you get all the fact-checking done from Kathy. And, uh, and she's going to share a little bit. And then Pastor Matt's going to come up. And we're going to open up the floor for you guys to ask questions. So Kathy and I love to do that. There's a lot of questions about uh, what God has done in our life. And, uh, and, and from the hardships that we came from, the starting the ministry, so we want to be able to answer those questions for you. Uh, but to start off, I want to share a little bit about some of my experiences uh, in Afghanistan. A uh, story I love to share is about this time I was in Afghanistan. And uh, I was a, uh, my job in the Marine Corps, I was a force reconnaissance Marine, which is special operations in the Marine Corps. And I was very privileged, I got assigned to this, what's called JSOC Task Force, a Joint Special Operations Command Task Force, and I had a kind of a... a a different role than um, most traditional military would have. I'd usually work with one or two other guys, with local nationals, other Afghans. We wear civilian clothes and be in civilian vehicles and going out and doing really cl- clandestine logistics types operations. And this particular day, I was with one other guy. Uh, I'm the guy without the square sunglasses there. Right? And we were, uh, we were dressed in normal civilian clothes, and we were in a Toyota Prada, which is like a Toyota 4Runner. And we were driving on a road called Jalalabad Road into the eastern side of the, the city of Kabul, which is the capital of Afghanistan. At this time, U.S. forces had pretty much controlled the capital city of Kabul, so the Taliban, the only time they would come there would be to start trouble or try to blow themselves up or blow something up. So when you seen the Taliban, you knew they were up to no good. And uh, as we were driving on this road, we looked in the rearview mirror, and behind us was a Hilux pickup truck. Uh, loaded with guys that looked like they were stereotypical Taliban. And uh, to give you an idea of how many of them were in this truck, we always had a joke. Uh, how many Taliban can you fit in a Hilux pickup truck? 
right? The answer's one more, right? They like piled in this truck and they had tribal clothing on. They were dusty. They had big beards. They had uh, AK-47 assault rifles. And we even seen one RPG, a rocket propelled grenade launcher. So we knew these guys were definitely up to no good. And we were hoping they weren't following us. And so I did this technique that we, that we learned called deviating your route. And so I took a right off of Jalalabad Road and they were following us. And I continued to go around the block. And when I made it back to Jalalabad Road and turned right on my original path and they turned to follow us, I, it indicated to me that they, in fact, were following us, but it also let them know that I knew now they were following us, which started a chase. And so they started chasing us and pursuing us. I lived in the city of Kabul, and so I knew it well. I didn't live on a base anywhere, and living in that city, I, I figured I knew it well enough to get away from them. Now, if anybody's ever been uh, in a third world country, uh, you know the traffic is worse than any major city you could ever possibly be in, right? The traffic in Kabul, there's no stoplights or, or stop signs, and so the traffic gets really congested, and I started having a very difficult time losing these guys. I got to a major intersection called Masood Circle, and as I got to the intersection, the traffic started to congest and stop, and all of a sudden, I didn't have anywhere to go. Somehow, this truck came around the front of us, and about 20 yards in front, blocked us off. I remember a few guys jumped out the back, but I very vividly remember the uh, passenger door opening, the guy stepped out, he had his AK-47 rifle in one hand, in the other hand he's giving me a hand signal, making eye contact with me to stop. Uh, we were in a real bad situation. In my training experience, that's called being, being stuck on the X. Uh, the X is a, it's an ambush site, a kill zone. And a couple of things you learn in training about the X is number one, you have to be able to identify that you're on the X, right? You gotta know you're in a bad situation. And number two, you have to get off the X, right? You gotta move, you can't stay there or something bad's gonna happen. And so I'm so thankful for military training. I trained for this exact scenario before in my training, a roadblock situation, and I had to execute a ramming technique. And so I knew exactly what to do. I'm thankful for military training. I hit the gas and I aimed my vehicles toward, towards theirs. And probably one of my favorite memories of Afghanistan is when I smashed in the front of that truck, seeing little Taliban guys fly out the back <laughs> through the air. A few of them jumped and a few of them flew. I don't know how many of them were hurt. Uh, but. But as, as I knocked that truck out of the way, it left a perfect pathway for me to get off that intersection. And as I'm driving off the intersection, there's this like 100-year-old Afghan policeman, his uniform on and his whistle, and he's going to stop me, right? So he's blowing his whistle and hand signaling me for me to stop. He's like, beep, beep, beep. And there was no way I was going to stop. I was going to run him over. So as I'm headed towards to run him over to get out of there, uh, one of the good things about Afghans is they always jump on a winning team. So he jumped on my side, and he started blowing his whistle and stopping cars and directing traffic and actually got us off that intersection and saved the day for us that day. And um, you know, I don't know what would have happened if we would have stopped that day on Masood Circle, if we would have stopped on the X. We would have probably put up a heck of a fight, but the truth is we probably would have been killed or taken, the two of us. Um, you know, and I'm here to tell you today, you don't have to go to Iraq or Afghanistan to find yourself on the X. I'm sure everybody in this room can recall a time in their life that they were stuck on the X in life. Um, maybe you're on it today. Maybe that's why God has you here today, to make the decision of whether you're going to stay there or move forward. Now, the question isn't in life if you're going to find yourself on the X in life. It's when you do, what are you going to do? In the ministry that Jeremy and I and our wives do at Mighty Oaks Foundation, working with combat veterans on active duty and, and, and uh, from the veteran community, we have so many guys that come to our program essentially in that scenario, stuck on that X and having to make a decision what they're going to do about the situations they're in. And through that work and through my own experience, I've really learned it comes down to one thing, and that's a choice, a decision we have to make in life. If we're going to stay on those X's in our life, we're going to make a decision to move forward into the lives and promises that God has for us. Um, the Bible has a, a great illustration of this, uh, as it does for most things in life, in the book of Exodus, where, where God makes a promise to the Israelites to take them from multiple generations, 400 years of slavery and bondage, into the promised land, into a new life of freedom. 
And uh, God communicates this to Moses while Moses is in the wilderness. And he, he communicates to, to a burning, through a burning bush. And he tells Moses, I heard the prayers of my people, and I'm going to set them free. And Moses, I'm going to use you to do it. Now, Moses didn't feel qualified. Uh, he did, probably didn't want to do it. But he was obedient to God, and he decided to do it anyway. So he goes to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who's over, over a million slaves. And he tells him this crazy story about he was in the wilderness. And God spoke to him through a burning bush. And told him to set his slaves free. So I'm sure Pharaoh's like, wait, let me get this right. Say that again. He's calling his friends into here, right? Go ahead, say it again, Moses. Like, God told you to tell me through a burning bush that you're gonna set that I need to set my slaves free. Right? What do you think his answer was? Of course, no. Like, I'm not setting my slaves free. You're a crazy guy. Like, go away. And uh, and so Pharaoh didn't agree to do this. And over a period of uh, what's called the ten plagues, God wore Pharaoh down. And at the end of that period, Pharaoh agreed to let the Israelites go over a million slaves to let them go and, and give them a, a brand new beginning. You have to imagine the Israelites had to be so excited, right? They had a, not only were they set free from slavery and bondage, but they were given a promise from God himself for a brand new start, a new beginning to go into the promised land. So they probably marched out of Egypt, right, singing songs about it. Their spirits had to be so high, and they were leaving Egypt. And at the first sign of hardship they run into, their faith crumbles. They forget the promise of God, and they essentially find themselves stuck on the X. But as they're, leaving, as they're leaving Egypt, they make their way down to the Red Sea. And they stop at the Red Sea before, if you heard the, Mo, the story of Moses splitting the waters, right before that happened, they stop there for the night and camp for the night. And while they're there, something happens with Pharaoh. Uh, the Bible says God allowed his heart to be hardened, and he changed his mind. And he went after the Israelites, not with a truck full of Taliban. He went after them, the Bible says, with the entire Egyptian army. Every horse, every chariot, Pharaoh himself came after them. And, they, and the Israelites found themselves stuck between the Red Sea and this imposing Egyptian army. And they essentially are stuck on the X, and their faith crumbles. And they start crying out to God. They start panicking. In Exodus 14, 9, it says this. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the Red Sea. In verse 10, it says, As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there the Egyptians marching after them, they were terrified, and they cried out to the Lord. Right? They had a promise from God. They probably knew it, but somewhere along that journey, they forgot it, and then it got hard. Right? Have you ever been, uh, maybe had something you're excited about, heard a sermon you're motivated about, you're making some changes in your life, and you kind of forget it, and all of a sudden, life comes crashing in on you, and then you start crying out, praying to God. That's where these guys were. They start praying to God and crying out, forgot the promise that God had for them. And then they do what most of us do when things go wrong. They start looking for someone to blame. And they pointed to Moses and they blamed him. In verse 11 and 12 it said, And they said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What, you have, done, what have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would be better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die here in the desert. They were willing to go back to the life, the slavery and bondage that they lived in. Why? Because it got hard. Not because God's promise changed. Because it got hard, they gave up on that promise. But Moses, Moses didn't forget the promise, and he tries to remind them in verse 13 and 14. He said, Moses answered the people and said, Do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance of the Lord that you will bring for you today. The Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see them again. The Lord will fight for you, and you need only to be still. And then God speaks, and I love what God says here. He doesn't say keep praying. He doesn't say to even be still. He doesn't say wait for a miracle. No, what God says is it's pretty profound and it's a lesson for all of us when we find ourselves stuck in the X. In verse 15, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying to me? 
Tell the Israelites to move on. I love the King James Version when God tells them to go forward, to move, to get off the X. you got to go. If you hadn't noticed, the Egyptians are coming, and they're going to kill you. It's time to go, right? The promise was already made, right? God had a promise for them. And there's a time to pray. I love prayer. I'm in ministry. I pray a lot. And I'm pretty, uh, I have a lot to pray about most times. But there's also a time to, to know and trust the promises of God and to be able to go forward. So pray, right? Pray, uh, but pray knowing the promises of God. So when the day comes that you find yourself on the X and you will, you don't start crying and praying out of panic and fear and hopelessness, but you're able to move forward out of faith. Just like God had a, a promise for the Israelites, he has a promise for each of us. He has a promise for you. He has a promise for me. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. That's a promise for each and every one of us. Now, I wish I could say that I always uh, moved forward in my life when I found myself on the X or that I knew or even trusted the promises of God, but that's just not the case. Um, in 2007, I came home from my eighth and last deployment, and I was uh, diagnosed with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And I found myself essentially stuck on the X again in life. And I didn't follow this time those two simple rules. I didn't, one, recognize that I was on the X, or maybe I just didn't want to admit that I was on the X. And because of that, I wasn't able to make that choice to move off the X. In fact, I chose, and I'll kind of emphasize, I chose to stay there for a period of almost three years. And it almost cost me everything. And in uh, 1993 is when I entered the military. I joined the Marine Corps. But uh, my hardships in my life probably started far beyond that. I'm a three-generation Marine family, um, myself uh, being a Marine. My son, Hunter, is a, a young Marine. In fact, he's, uh, he just left Germany yesterday. He's on his way to Afghanistan. So if you guys uh, want to keep my son in prayers, uh, super proud of him. And he's going to be the third-generation Marine in, in my family, which means my father was a Marine a combat veteran who served in Vietnam as an infantryman. And when my father came home from Vietnam, I know now that he struggled with a lot of the same things that I struggle with and many of our military warriors struggle with today. Yeah, he had a, a lot of hurt probably in his life and uh, didn't know how to deal with it. And uh, so it manifested in a lot of anger, alcohol, a lot of women in his life, uh, extreme physical abuse between you know, my, my siblings and um, the women in his life. Uh, if anybody's ever grown up in a dysfunctional home like that, you know the siblings get very close. And so I had a brother who was a year older than me, and uh, the two of us really bonded through that, that hardship. Uh, we, we would endure a lot of physical beatings from my father, and I don't mean spankings. I mean like fist to face being choked, punched, things like that through our life. And we'd always talk about, um, as kids, we'd talk about joining the military and really escaping that lifestyle, and that was something we wanted to do. We both like, loved watching war movies and talking about special operations stuff, so we, we, loved, we grew up in southern Louisiana. We were in the water all the time, so we loved to uh, notice I say water. I can't say water because I'm from Louisiana, but we were in it a lot. And uh, we loved to swim, and we thought we'd you know, join the military and be in some type of special operations. We were 13 and 14 years old. We started, uh, made a kind of a pact, and we started running and swimming and really training ourselves at a young age to do that. Uh, and when I was 14 and he was 15, uh, tragically, he was shot and killed. And uh, for me, at my life, he was the closest person to me at that time. It was extremely devastating. I went into very deep isolation as a kid. What I had left of a family broke apart. I found myself living alone at 15 years old. And when I was 17 years old, um, I met a Marine Corps recruiter named Staff Sergeant Brown, and he gave me that second chance in life to join the Marine Corps. Um, I, had, uh, I had never stopped training uh, like my brother and I started, so I was very prepared to go into the military. And uh, within my first year in the Marine Corps, uh, I really embraced it. I recognized that it was a second chance at life. It was a clean slate for me. And I tried out to be a reconnaissance Marine, uh, which is a very uh, 
difficult ch task, especially for a, a young kid. And, and I made it, and I made it in that, that career field and uh, totally embraced it. The first few years in the Marine Corps was nothing but training and preparing, uh, preparing to go you know, to do that job, which is a lot of schools. I met Kathy during that time, and we got married. We've been married 23 years now, so it's been awesome. <laughs> so, and, uh, it, had, it had all been awesome. You guys are here the rest of the story, but it's awesome now. <laughs> But for me, like doing the doing that job in the in the Marine Corps, like training and training and training. This was 1993 when I went in, right? It was way before the war on terror. And I'm doing all this training, and I'm like, man, I really want to do my job. I want to go to combat. Right? And I know a lot of ladies, especially the military wives, are like, why would, like, why would, uh, like, you want to go to combat? Why would you like some kind of warmonger or something? You think that about your husbands? And so I'll take this opportunity to explain it to you. Um, it's like if you were, had like this really nice dress and got all dressed up and get your makeup on, you didn't have anywhere to go. That's what it's like being in the military. You train and train and train, and you just want to go. You want to do your job, what you're trained to do. I want to do that. I, uh, sadly, for many of us, it came at the cost of 9-11. I remember seeing those planes flying to the World Trade Center buildings. Kathy and I watched it on television, and we knew at that moment, it, I was at Third Force Recon Company at the time, like we knew our life was about to be completely different. Um, we knew our life would probably never be the same. Uh, I wanted to deploy. I pushed every opportunity I had to ch get a chance to deploy. Uh, in 2003 is when I tried out and got accepted in that JSOC task force, and uh, I got exactly what I asked for. I did eight deployments over uh, a pretty rapid short-term period. And, uh, and during, that, during that time, when I went to Afghanistan, I felt like I was completely prepared. Um, we do a lot of resiliency training, talked to the men yesterday about it. Uh, being prepared uh, as a resilient warrior means you're prepared you know, mentally, physically, spiritually, and, and socially, right? You have a strong mind, you have a strong body, you have a strong spiritual uh, life, and then you have a social network, a, a, a brotherhood around you. Uh, but I didn't really understand what that meant, especially in the spiritual aspect. In fact, I had to wear Christian stamped on my dog tags because you have to pick something, so I thought I was good there. But I really didn't know what that meant, and, and, uh, and it would be tested. I went to church before Afghanistan. We, me and Kathy were part of a church, and I remember like going every Sunday and probably checking that, that box. But if I'm honest, looking back at that time, I really didn't understand what it meant to be a, a man of faith. In fact, I had a completely opposite view because I looked at men in the church as, as weak. That was kind of my viewpoint, and I thought, I don't want to be like them. Like, I want to be like the guys I work with. I want to be you know, tough and mean and all these things, but I don't want to be like those guys at church. So I brung my wife to church probably more to manipulate my family than anything else, control my family, um, because I'm kind of wired that way. Like, if my wife goes to church, then she's going to be you know, faithful and loyal and be that Proverbs 31, like uh, virtuous woman. She's going to be all these things that I want out of a wife. And my kids are going to go to Sunday school, and they're going to get good lessons and discipline, and I won't have to beat them because of the way they're going to behave so well from going to church. Like, I'm going to get all these benefits out of it, but I'm not going to invest in, a, in my personal relationship in the church. I'm not going to play so softball with those guys. Like, those guys are nerds. Like, that was kind of how I, I viewed it. And, uh, and uh, honestly, like, there's some truth to that. There's a lot of weak men in church that really uh, put a barrier between young men wanting to be men of God. And uh, so I get to Afghanistan, and I feel like I have to make a choice between being a man of faith and being a warrior. And what are young men going to pick? They can pick being a warrior. Now, so, so many times, and I believe it's one of the biggest lies of the enemy for men than this, is that they have to believe that they have to choose between, being, between their Christianity and their masculinity. And there's no bigger lie of the enemy than that, because if not for men of God in this world, if not for men of faith, who else would stand up and fight for the things worth fighting for? 
I've seen on the battlefield of, of Afghanistan and Iraq and so many people come to our program. I look at guys like Jeremy who went to combat with the faith and, and understand that the most strongest and courageous people on the battlefield of, of combat and of life are men of faith. And I wish someone would have told me that and I wouldn't have felt like I had to choose because I believe that if there's a kind of fork in the road for my life, I believe when I got to that critical moment of being in Afghanistan, I made a deliberate decision to put God on the side and say I could do this when I get older. It's not cool now. I'll do that when I get older and I can do this later. And because of that decision, I feel like I left a giant hole inside of me that I fill with hate and rage and anger and bitterness over the years. Um, I, I didn't live on a base. I lived in a town uh, with the Afghans. I lived in their home. I ate dinner with their families. I played soccer with their kids. And I would hear the stories. I remember early on hearing the stories of what the, who the Taliban really was. And I went from this like patriotic, like American warfighter retaliating for 9-11 to having a compassion for these people and wanting to really help these people that had truly been oppressed. And, uh, and I began to hate the Taliban. In fact, everyone I worked with in my task force had this hatred for the enemy and was driven that way. Probably the people that hated the Taliban more than anybody else we worked with were the former Northern Alliance Afghans they we worked with because they had endured that hardship personally. And their, their families had endured that and their culture had endured that. And so there was a lot of like very intense and uh, drivenness to do our job. And that intensity and anger in our job worked really well in Afghanistan. It made us successful, to be honest with you. It's kind of Viking mentality that our command had was like, it, it worked. But where it didn't work was when we go back home. And I'd be 24 hours later, home from Afghanistan, and my wife's picking me up from the airport. Now I'm supposed to be like the husband and, and father and Mr. Rogers, like the friendly neighbor, like I'm supposed to be this guy. Like I couldn't be that person. I couldn't like flip a switch and, and turn, that, turn that off and be someone different. I was still this angry, intense guy in my home with my wife and children. And I'm ashamed to say, but it's the truth. Like my home was not a happy place to be. I was probably always an angry guy and always very intense, but at that time it was really ramped up. And uh, my wife and children are walking on eggshells, worrying about saying the wrong thing. And I'd throw a temper tantrum like a 15-year-old child, like break things, yell, punch holes in the wall, scream at people and intimidate everybody in my house, being a bully because I couldn't control my emotions. I, was, I felt extremely frustrated and angry, and I started recognizing this, uh, th this behavior that I was having, and it really scared me because I seen how my father was, and I always thought I would never be like my father is, and now I see these behaviors starting to manifest in me. And so one of a few incidents I can remember specifically, one was my daughter uh, excited that I was going to be there for her birthday party, and she had her, her birthday, and my daughter, if you know her, she's very opinionated. She still is. Like, this is who she is. And she didn't like the icing on her cake, or she would be correcting me if she was here. She didn't like the cake, right? And, uh, and I just flipped out. I grabbed the handful of my little girl's birthday cake, and I threw it against the wall and destroyed my little girl's party. And I remember thinking, like, like, who does something like that? Like, what kind of dad does something like that to their little girl? And uh, the truth is, I was behaving that way all the time. And that's just one example. And those incidents in, in my home made me start to realize that, how, that I needed to distance myself and isolate myself from my family. Instead of changing my behaviors, I just withdrew, uh, mainly probably to uh, protect them from me. And over time, those, those, those moments of anger and frustration started manifesting into these physiological symptoms in me uh, where I'd have these moments where my arms would go numb, my forearms would go numb, and I'd, my face would go numb. I'd feel like my, my throat was swelling shut, and I couldn't breathe. I'd, sometimes I felt like I had like 1,000 pounds of uh, weight on my chest, and these were signs of panic attacks. I, I didn't know at the time. I knew something was going on with anxiety, but I didn't want to say anything with the guys I worked with because I knew if I told anyone, one, they would think it was weak, and I'd be ostracized amongst my community, and two, I thought there was a fear of me not being able to do my job anymore. 
uh, with my clearance and things like that. I thought if I said something and went see a doctor, I wouldn't be able to do my job anymore. So I tried to just push it down and move forward and continue on. And eventually those uh, symptoms started to get worse. Over time, uh, those, uh, the panic attack uh, symptoms uh, went, actually felt like my heart was going to stop beating. I uh, started having these moments where I almost felt like, uh, it's strange to say, but I almost felt like an out-of-body kind of experience where I could like see myself. Um, and then there was moments where I'd almost like wake up out of a fog and I'd forget things. And I started realizing that, you know, it was getting much more, uh, it was progressing much, much worse. And, and then it was a moment at the very end where I woke up out of this kind of fog. And I remembered for about two weeks that I was, I kind of had a blackout of two weeks. And I realized that I didn't almost, uh, I didn't only put myself in danger, but I put other people in danger as well. And so I had to speak up and say something. And when I did, I was brought home. Uh, I was put before a clinical psychologist and I was diagnosed with uh, PTSD. I had never even heard of PTSD at that time. I was joking yesterday with the guys. That I thought it sounded like something I contracted. So, you know, they could give me a shot for it and send me back overseas because I had plenty of work left to do. Uh, but it was something much more serious. Uh, it's post-traumatic stress disorder. Jeremy and I and, and the Mighty Oaks, we have a very strong opinion about it not being a disorder. It's being something, it's, it's something that you could heal from. It is something that uh, the body's response to trauma is something that God created us to uh, be able to endure and overcome uh, through physiological symptoms that are wired inside of us. However, uh, despite all that, we, we, the symptoms were very real, and they were very scary to us. And, uh, and for me, uh, at that time, I felt like uh, this imminent sense of doom. Like the only way I know how to describe the level of panic that I was at was like if I was drowning and the water, the surface of the water was like a foot above my head and I was like chained to the bottom of the pool and I couldn't get to the surface to get a breath of air, the level desperation and panic that you would have, that was 24-7, constant for me. Like I was drowning but wouldn't die. That's, how, that's, how, that's the level of panic. And, uh, and, and uh, I felt like my body was going to shut down at any moment. Uh, I, I, was very, I was scared for the first time in a, in a, thing, a long time. I was literally scared of uh, what was going to happen next. I was scared of people even understanding what was actually going on in my mind. And, uh, and I was also very ashamed. Because I felt like I had a very important job, a lot of responsibility, and I completely failed at it amongst my peers. And so I was completely ashamed of that. Now, Kathy, and, uh, Kathy was the closest person to me at that time. They really come around and, and level me and try to help me through it. I was in a very vulnerable state. The counselor and her were trying to figure out something for me to do to get me moving forward. And so they, uh, they taught, convinced me to get on those mats and do wrestling and jiu-jitsu. Brazilian jiu-jitsu is a wrestling-based martial art. Uh, I'd say I did it since I was little, but I'm still little. Right, so I, I did it since I was since I was five years old. Right? It was something I did my whole life. I was already a professional fighter on the side, so they talked me into you know getting out and, and training. And I was pretty good. I hadn't been. I was still undefeated. I was fighting on the side in the military. I was undefeated as a professional. So it was something they thought I would enjoy. And I tell you, when I got on those wrestling mats the first time, I felt like I, I found the cure, because you can't think about Afghanistan or any kind of hardships while you're training. Your buddy's going to punch you or kick you or choke you. You have to pay attention. And so I was engaged, and my mind was engaged, and I felt like, again, I felt like I found a cure, and I just totally gravitated to it. I'm like, if I could do this 24-7, I'm good, right? And, uh, but obviously, you can't do it 24-7. Uh, I, sure, I sure did try. And, uh, I, and I, I love jiu-jitsu. I think it's good for you. Uh, I think it's good to have a good activity when you're going through a hard time. But you can have a medicine for being sick, and you can abuse that medicine. And that's what I did with this. I took something that was good for me, and I abused it. Again, I love jiu-jitsu. I do it every day. A ministry, Pastor Matt, I tell you, ministry is extremely stressful. And when I have a bad day at the office, I go to the gym and I find like some 19-year-old stud and I choke him out. Like, it makes me feel better and I get back to, you know, sharing the gospel at work. And, but I took this thing that was good for me and I totally abused it 
And if you put that much time in anything, you're going to be successful. And so our business, we, had, we opened a school. Kathy and I you know, worked really hard to run that business, and we had almost 1,000 students uh, over, over a three-year period. So we had a success, very successful business. I started really fighting in the higher-level professional shows. I fought on the pay-per-view and Showtime and all these uh, HDNet and MTV. I fought on all these big shows and, uh, and I ended up getting like, very high-ranked. I won a world title belt. So I'm like, building up this success. And on the outside, it looks like I'm extremely successful, right? I, I mean, it's, people are seeing the things that we're achieving and thinking that I wouldn't have any more problems like this. But the truth is, it was a fake facade of success. And underneath it all was still a, a, a broken person. Uh, a family that was crumbling, and in uh, in a marriage that was dying. I mean, we uh, we oftentimes I would sleep at a gym or at a friend's house in my kids' room. Sometimes I I think the loneliest time in our marriage would probably be not away in Afghanistan, but in our own bed with our backs turning each other in a in a dead marriage. Like, um, and we thought. I mean, at least I thought there was no hope of restoration for our marriage. Uh, it didn't take long for me to engage in inappropriate relationships with other women in, a, in the gym and, and the people were around and ended up in an affair. Uh, I would, was lying to my family and didn't really, didn't really care about the consequences for that. And I remember uh, sitting down with my family and telling them how we were getting divorced and it was going to be better, right? It was going to be better. They wouldn't have to hear the fighting anymore. They wouldn't have to deal with all this anymore. Um, it wasn't going to be better. Our, our kids were, were devastated. I remember even, even hugging them and kind of embracing them and crying together as a family uh, during that time, and uh, we did, we moved forward anyway. Sold our home. We uh, Kathy and I signed two separate leases for 12 months for apartments, and uh, we uh, Kathy filed for the divorce papers, uh, and we moved forward in this process. Kathy and I had two very different reactions. Kathy went to a church in, in Texas, um, a community church, and I remember uh, talking to people about how she would go there, not just on Sundays, but she'd go there during the week, and she'd be praying for me. And uh, she picked up the book, Power of a Praying Wife, and, and all these things that she was doing for me. I've, I've asked her since, and obviously we talked a lot about it since, but she said she would, she would pray, you know, God, let me see Chad the way you see Chad. God, let me love Chad the way you love Chad, and let me forgive Chad the way you forgave Chad. And, uh, you know, that's what she was doing for me when I had completely abandoned her and, and our kids. Uh, meanwhile, I'm in this, you know, kind of moving forward. I'm in this apartment, and and it didn't take me long to set it up, have my like bachelor pad and kind of what I wanted to be a, a separate from all that, that tension and, and kind, of, uh, kind of really hide from all the things that I was putting them through. And I had this big fight on Showtime, and I was really focused on this fight. And I remember after that fight was over, uh, going back to my apartment and, and, uh, and really just reflecting on where I was at that time. All the damage that I caused as Kathy and the kids and the things that they were going through and how hurt they were. And uh, before, I had, I had blamed everyone else, right? Everyone's an idiot. And it's true, there's a lot of idiots out there. But, but in this case, like, I was blaming, like, my dad, you know, always, always still mad. At, I was just so, so angry at my, my father, um, people in the military, at Kathy. I was angry at Kathy because she didn't know how to deal with this. And I thought, you know, she don't understand and, and all these things. And I realized that I'm the common denominator. Like, all these people I'm blaming, like, it's me. I'm the problem. And, uh, and these people are hurt, my wife and children. If, they would, if I wouldn't be here, they'd be better off. And so I had this thought come over me and kind of take root in my mind that, that if the, my family didn't have me, they'd be sad without me, but they'd be better off. And for those that know, that, that hopeless thought finds a home in the hearts of 20-plus veterans every single day at the rate of 20 veterans taking their life a day right now. And, uh, and that was the thought that resonated with me. I uh, would sit in my closet, and, and, and I'd have my 
family's pictures in my closet, which is very shameful to say because in this apartment that I had set up, I didn't have any of my family's pictures out in the apartment where people could see. I had them in my closet. And, you know, I just think it kind of disgusts me to think that I did that, but that's what I did. My family's pictures were in my closet. And I put them out and I look at them and I had my, my pistol in my hand and try to make a decision of how I was going to do this. The reason I didn't pull the trigger was probably one, I don't know if I had, I, don't, I really don't know if I had the courage to go through with it. Um, but two, um, and main, the main reason is my son Hunter, my oldest son who's in the Marines now, he had the only key to my apartment. And so I knew he'd probably be the one that would find me. I didn't want my, my kids to find me that way. And so I would delay. And it was Kathy that came to the apartment, and she knocked on the door. And uh, I remember answering the door. And she had you know, unwittingly saved my life because we got in this argument. And I don't even know what we're arguing about. I was just being a jerk, probably. And she asked me a, a question that radically changed my life. She asked me how I could do everything I did in the Marine Corps. She saw me. We were dating at 17 and 18 years old. We got married a year later. She saw me become a recon marine. She saw me go through all these hard schools. She saw me train for these deployments and the crazy stuff we do to, to prepare for Afghanistan and in Afghanistan. She saw me train for these fights, like the amount of discipline it takes to train for these fights and uh, cut weight and lose 35 pounds and train when you're sore and broken and have to get out there and grind through it anyway. Like she saw the discipline it took for me to, to do that. And she's like, how could you do all of that? And when it comes to your family, you'll quit. And, uh, you know, for me, there's no more soul-cutting word than to be called a quitter. And uh, she was absolutely right. I'd been successful at professional things in my life, but when it came to the most important thing, being a husband, being a father, being that young 17-year-old kid that raised his hand for the Marine Corps and said, I want to do something important with my life, I quit on all those things, including my own will to live and my own health. And it was time for me to make a, a decision to change things. I'm, I'm a pretty radical decision maker. Uh, and so, like, for me, it was like 180 degrees, I'm going to fix this. There was nothing to do with faith in that moment. It was just like, I'm going to fix this. I, I, she's right. I had discipline. I had the, the willpower and the kind of character traits to do hard things. I could fix this. And, but it, the one thing I did know is that I knew I couldn't do it alone, and I knew I couldn't do it with the people that I had surrounded myself by. We talked yesterday with the men about accountability and brotherhood. I don't blame anyone in my life at that time. I blame myself because I had systematically pushed any accountability out of my life. And there's no more dangerous place on this planet to be more dangerous than any city in Afghanistan than for a man to be in this world without accountability in his life. And I didn't have any. I didn't want any. And uh, I knew I had to change that. That was the one thing I knew I had to change. And so I asked Kathy, if there's somebody at this church, some man at this church that can help hold me accountable uh, to the decision I'm going to make to turn things around. And she introduced me to a man named Steve Toth. Uh, Steve wasn't an MMA fighter. He wasn't in the military. Uh, in fact, uh, I'd say that, that despite all that, he had the perfect gift to minister and help me. And that's ADD. Like, the guy has, like, no patience at all. Uh, literally, when we go eat at a restaurant, like, he won't walk to his car because it's, like, a waste of time. He runs across the parking lot to his car. That's just who he is. And, and why it was so good for me is because I was so manipulative at this time. I would have said, said all the right things. In fact, I wrote a perfect, like, plan, like, change my life plan uh, for the military guys. I wrote it in, like, a five-paragraph order, like, Smeak style. And I was really proud of it. I was, like, kind of probably, I can imagine me looking back now, it's probably really smug, like, slid it over to him, like, like super proud, like, hey, check this out. I'm going to tell my wife about this. This is good stuff. And, uh, and that's, what I, that's kind of how it was. And he, he took that thing and slid it right back over to me without even reading it and told me I was going to fail. And I was like, who is this jerk? Like, like, really, like, I put all this work, you don't even know you, like, you won't even read this thing? And he tapped on that thing, and he said, if this doesn't have anything to do with your relationship with God, I'm not going to waste your time, and I'm not going to let you waste mine. And uh, that was exactly what I needed to hear in that moment. 
You know, I, I had tried everything. I tried the pills. I tried the counseling. I tried the MMA and jiu-jitsu. Like, none of those things worked. And it was time for me to try something different. In fact, one of the main sayings that our ministry at Mighty Oaks, kind of a token phrase is, if what you're doing isn't working, then why not try something different? And that comes from that moment with Steve. Because what I was doing wasn't working. It was time for me to try something different. And I did. I trusted Steve. I submitted my life to Christ. Really just dove head in because I, I knew that I had tried everything else. Nothing else had worked. And, uh, and beyond the decision to submit my life to Christ, uh, Steve mentored me for an entire year in biblical manhood. Steve was there. His wife, Babette, was there for Kathy. They were there together for us and just investing in us. They'd leave our house at midnight and be coming back at 3 a.m. in the morning trying to help us help us overcoming, find the restoration through this. I'd be struggling with things, and I'd call Steve, and he'd walk me through it. Just this mentorship ongoing for over a year, and it radically changed everything in my life. I tell you, uh, there was a few moments I could look back in the year. There was a few, like, just like life-changing revelations for me. And one of them seems so simple, but I can't help but sharing it because it was so profound to me. It was the realization that all these things that had happened to me and all these things that happened to all of us in life, uh, just different stories, right, same path, different stories, but all these things that happened to me in my childhood, in Afghanistan, in my marriage, like all these things that I, was, that I thought had destroyed my life, those things didn't lead me to being in a closet with a pistol in my hand. What led me there were the choices I made in response to those things. And I'd never lost control of the ability to choose differently. And as cliche as it, as it may sound, I realized that I didn't have to let my past define my future. Right? The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul says it like this. He says, uh, he says, kind of says, as he's speaking to the church of Philippi in, in Philippians 3:13, he says, I don't have it all figured out, right? He's he's like, I don't have it all figured out, but one thing I know is this: I have to forget the past so I could strain forward to what lies ahead. I have to let go of the let go of that, what happened back there, so I could gain hold of this, which is the life and purpose that God has for me. And that was a moment that I was at in my life. And through that revelation and, and through that change in my life, I found restoration in, in our marriage. I found a restoration with my kids and, and, and friends. And I found, I found hope for the first time in a very long time uh, and a desire to live again. And I found what I think I wanted and needed my whole life and, and still want and need, is, and that's purpose. That's purpose. Uh, it, was, it was something that was missing inside of me. It's something that's missing in so many of us. Uh, whether we served in the military or not, that need for purpose, why is it such a big deal? Because we were created to have purpose. God didn't create us just because. He created us for a purpose. And, and when we're lacking that purpose in life and we don't step into that, we feel this void and we feel that hopelessness. And for, in some cases, in the worst cases, we feel so hopeless and so purposeless that we don't feel like there's a need to even live anymore. And uh, when I found that, it was like a fire was lit underneath me. Mark Twain says it like this, the two most important days in a person's life are the day that they're born and the day that they find out why. When Steve introduced me to the life that I was created to live, I felt like I found out the why. And it was to be here today, to share not my story, but the story of, of Christ in my life and what God has done and is doing in our life and the ministry we get to do today because that decision wasn't just to come speak at churches. It was to essentially just share what Steve had done in our lives with others, even if it was one other person. I mean, we had a, God put a pretty big dream and vision on our heart to share it with as many people as we could, but even if we could have shared that one person. Because for us, it was, like, it was like if we were dying of cancer and Steve Toth like, gave me the cure, like I didn't want to share it with someone else. I felt obligated. I felt like a compulsion, like I have to share this. And so when we started Mighty Oaks Foundation, 
Uh, it wasn't because we thought, hey, it would be a good career change to start a nonprofit and minister to others. And that was actually the absolute worst idea probably in the world for us to do. One, we didn't have any idea what we were doing. And two, we were still bleeding as a family ourselves. We still need to heal for ourselves. We just felt this passion and call from God to share what we had discovered with others. And we've been doing that ever since. And I'm so thankful despite the fact that we wasn't qualified and wasn't equipped to do it and had, had no idea how to do it. I'm so thankful we did it anyway because we get to be here at places like this with, with amazing people like you and meet people, pastors like, like Matt and Stacy that are doing incredible work for the military. And we get to uh, run our programs. We, uh, we do a resiliency program, like just like we're going tomorrow and, uh, to Stuttgart and, and speak on spiritual resiliency to troops. We do that all over. Uh, I go to Marine Corps boot camp every quarter. The Marine Corps allows me to speak to these brand-new recruits. Uh, at the very beginning, and tell them the, that the truth about being spiritually strong, what it really means, and that they don't have to decide one day when they're sitting in the closet with a pistol in their hand if they have to decide between being masculine and being a Christian and being a, being a man of God, what it actually means. We're able to tell them in the beginning uh, from someone who's, who's been there. And uh, we've, we've reached over 100,000 active duty troops uh, on bases around the country just sharing a message of spiritual resiliency. And uh, it's so amazing that God has opened the door and allowed us to be able to do that. And the military has welcomed us to be able to do that. We give away these books um, that we have in the back. I mean, they let us give away this at boot camp. Any Marines in here? Right? I mean, you know, at Marine Corps boot camp, you get a driver's license. Like, and they put it away. You can't have anything at Marine Corps boot camp. The fact that they let us give them a book at Marine Corps boot camp is amazing. They're going to read it because it's like doing prison ministry. They're so excited to have something that's not Marine Corps, that's not green. Right? We're, we were going to do this green at first, but we, re- we realized we wanted to give them something they, were, they would like. Right? So they're so excited about that, and it's, it's so cool that we get to do that. And then we run a, our legacy program, which is a week long, a week intensive for those who are struggling with trauma on the back end. We have four camps, four ranches around the country. We have Ohio, Texas, Virginia, and California. The one in California is incredible. It's where this picture is at. It's 25,000 acres in California exclusively for these guys. Their ranch is incredible. They don't pay anything to go there. We have about half active duty go on military orders. Another half are from the veteran community. We have spouses go. We pay for everything. We pay for the, tra- the travel for them to go there. Absolutely free. And we've had over 2,500 graduates uh, of that program. Uh, it's a week long. It's really replicating what Steve did for me in a year. I'm a harder case, so it took a year. But no, once that, that week's just the initial one set, and then we have an aftercare program for them. It's just absolutely incredible what that one decision in our life to finally choose to step off that X and step into the life that God had in, always intended for us, uh, the, the opportunities it's created for us to be able to be part of this. And I'm sure God would have did it without us, uh, but, but it's, it's pretty cool that we get to be part of it and, uh, and be part of his work and his plan. But uh, hey, God's promise of hope and restoration, it's not reserved for uh, the Israelites or for the military. Uh, it's for all of us, um, and it's for you. There's a, million, there's a million ways in this world that you could be hurt outside of Iraq, Afghanistan, outside of combat. There's a million ways to, to be hurt in life. There's a million ways to get off track in life. But I'm convinced in the, in the things that I've seen and the work that I've done that there's only one way to get well. There's only one way to get back on track, and that's through a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's where it starts. That's where it begins. We talk about getting off the X. That's the, that's the first step off that X is into a relationship with him. Everything else you figure out, you can figure out along the way, but that's the first step. And I, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty convinced of this, uh, that in this, in this life, this is, you know, whether you're in the military or not, and I know a lot of you here are, life in general is it, just hard. And there's be times that we're always going to find ourselves on those X's in our life. And they're all different for everyone, right? You could, there's so many things you can be struggling with, anger, frustration, depression, hopelessness, purpose, uh, life without purpose, childishness, addictions, 
drugs, alcohol, like uh, broken marriage, you name it. There's a lot of things that we could be, uh, find our, a lot of X's in our life, essentially we could find ourselves stuck on. But if we could step off the X into the life that God created us to live through relationship with him and understand the promise that he has for us, then we can move forward. Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. That's for each of us. And sometimes that promise, it'll lead you to your, your knees in prayer. And other times, I pray, it gives you the very faith you need to move forward. Thank you for listening to the SMCC Sermon Podcast. Be sure to visit us on the web at smcchurch.net. That's smcchurch.net.